All right, let's open up in a word of prayer. Dear Father, uh, we pray that you bless the reading and teaching of your word. We pray that you would take me out of it, that your spirit would, would be at work here. You'd work in our hearts. You would, you would move us and increase the manifestations of you and your fruit and your spirit in our lives. Amen. All right, so we're gonna, I'm going to start by reading Luke chapter 13, 22 to 30, and that's as far as I'm going to get. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And the people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. So just taking that at face value, um, I think largely this is to Israel, uh, to the pharisaical, legalistic Israelites. He's, he's talking to them. However, that does not mean that it is not very applicable to us, to the American church, or to the church. <laughs> I shouldn't stop in America. To, to the church, um, to anybody who would call themselves a Christian. It is a very uh, difficult passage to consider, but it needs to be considered. Um, I do want to say that I think we kind of skipped one verse in there, I think, because tw Mark ended at 20, so we, and I picked up at 22. So if anybody really likes verse 21 and wants to say anything on the open platform, that would be a chance to, but, or anyth anything that's, that the Spirit works in you. Um, so starting off in verse 22, uh, right off the bat it says, He went on his way through towns and villages. And I know this is small, but from somebody who lives in Glen Aubrey, it's just a hamlet of like. Can anything good come out of Glen Aubrey? <laughs> yeah, we're talking Nazareth size here, maybe smaller. You know, you can walk through it in five minutes. Um, that you look at Jesus here, and throughout Luke, you just see it's it's so impressive the crowds, how he's just mobbed by people. That as far as like an ancient day celebrity, and I know that wasn't Jesus' purpose, but like he was that people were all over him. Um, now, thinking of modern-day celebrities, if you wanted to go hear a celebrity's talk or a rock concert or whatever you wanted to go to, you'd have to go to a city. Like, and the bigger the celebrity they are, the bigger city. Like Some of the smaller ones, you might be like, oh, look, this person finally came to Binghamton. I'm going to go see it. But like some of the big ones, it's like, no, you need to go to like New York City or Chicago or Philadelphia. You guys got to see those guys. <laughs> um, you just, that's, they only go to the big places. Um, but so, as I was just thinking of how Jesus went through towns and villages, that he would stop on his way to Jerusalem in places like Glen Aubrey, little hamlets, where to him, um, it was important 
that just little clusters of people like me and my five cousins that live in Glen Aubrey all got to hear the gospel. Um, and just, I don't know, that, that just strikes me is, is just how the type of person he was, that it wasn't, it was about more individualistic and it, and it goes right back to how he was born. Um, that he came for the poor and the lonely, that he was born in a man- laid in a manger and only the shepherds came and then the wise men did. And just seeing what type of people he was after, he came to heal those who were sick and needed a doctor, not the, not the ones who thought they were, they were all right, not the ones who were, who were in it for the popularity or the money. He came for the oppressed. He came for those who were low and downtrodden. Um, and then I kind of reference this next point a little bit in the first one, the first meeting, that, you know, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem, that the whole time he's teaching and journeying, it's going towards Jerusalem. And kind of like I said, really, you could rightfully say he is journeying toward Jerusalem ever since creation, <clears throat> that Jerusalem and the cross and the tomb is the great crescendo of history, that Christ, right from the beginning, he had his eyes set on where he was going. He was going to get to the cross, and he works his way slowly. Like, you know, if you go through the whole Old Testament, it's, it's all building up to it. And then here, when he's on this earth, he's journeying towards Jerusalem. He stops, he talks to these people, he heals them, he, he gives them the truth, he loves them but he's going towards Jerusalem. And that's because he loves all these people, why he's going to Jerusalem. Um, and we know the verse that I know Mark Thomas likes to mention, that he sets his face like flint toward, toward this destination, <clears throat> that he's, he's heading toward a showdown with sin and death, and he never loses sight of that, that he has his goal and his purpose set in front of him. So then verse 23, and someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be a few? We're going to stop there. Now, as interesting as reading different commentaries, the different ways everybody took that question, it was all over the board. Uh, Some people were like, oh, the guy was curious. Some say it was earnest. Some people say it was a trap. You know, know, he wanted to trap him with the Jews because most of the Jews thought all the Jews were, were going to be saved. So if he says... If he says, uh, yeah, there's going to be few, it's like, oh, you got that wrong. Or if he says, yeah, it's going to be many, he's like, see, he lets anybody in. You know, so some people said it was a trap. It doesn't really say. We don't, we don't know what spirit that question was asked in. Um, but I do want to point out that that question uh, gets down to the heart of Jesus' ministry better than a lot, a lot of other people's questions all the way up through Luke thus far. That we've gone through... Um, about 12 and a half chapters now, and almost everyone is focused on the things of this life, of this earth. People want healing. They want bread. They want signs and miracles. They want a Messiah to, to uh, lead against the Romans and establish a physical Jewish kingdom. That's, that's what a lot of the questions are about. That's what a lot of the times he's preaching me, like, no, you're not getting it. It's, it's more about the spiritual. Like, if it, like eternity is worth so much more than the few, lives, the few, the few years here. But this question, this question seems to get at that, to say, you know, are those who are saved being few? It's about salvation. Like, this isn't about, you know, being healed or, or seeing a sign. This is about, you know, what about those being saved? Like, I get it's about being saved. That's why you're here. <clears throat> um, 
Now, so before, before we go ahead to Jesus' answer, I do want to think a little bit and get you guys thinking a little bit about the hypothetical of someone asking that today. Because that could be a question. That a, a legit, it's a legitimate question then, it's a legitimate question now. Are those, being sa- are those who are saved few? Um, and this is, this is where, as I start to think about these things, it starts to, it, it, uh, it's frightening. Um, because when I think about what your generic Christian would answer, what people, you know, if somebody who says they're a Christian, if they were asked this question, are those who are saved being few, the answers they would give. Um, and as a whole, I'm not sure the, the church, and when I say church, I don't mean the true church. I mean the church is in like how people would think of it. I'm not sure that that church has the honesty to give a truthful answer to that question. Um, I think that a lot of Christians would turn this into a, you know, you, here's how you can be sure that you're saved. Um, you say this prayer, you mean it in your heart, you know, you ask Jesus to come in, and I'm not saying that, those are nece- that that's necessarily bad, but that's not really the answer that Jesus gives here. Um, and so as we think about this question, our, where did I get to? Will those who are saved be, be few? Let us be very careful in how we would answer it. Um, and now let us look at how Jesus answers it. So, and he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. <clears throat> so first, I want to point out that you know, the question was, will those who are saved be few? And the first part of the answer is, Strive to enter through the narrow door. It's not like, oh yes, it's going to be fewer, or, or oh, a lot of people are going to get in. It's more like you. You focus on you. And like it reminds me of uh, when Peter's asking about John at the end of John, and Jesus says, "What is that to you? You know, you worry about Peter. Like you each worry about you. I worry about me. You know, that you're the one that can that you do the striving for you. You don't worry about where other people are. That's between them and God." Um. So then the word strive was interesting. Uh, the, it's the word, the Greek word is where we get the word agonize from. So not exactly, like stri- strive is one way to put it. <laughs> agonize is another. And then, so it's used a few times through the scriptures. It's used one other time in the gospels. And that's in John chapter 18, verse 36, where Jesus tells Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered to the Jews. And the word is fighting. That this word here is fighting, and not just fighting, fighting for a kingdom. Fighting for your Lord and Master to save him from destruction, in this sense. Like, you know, it starts to take that word strive to another level when Jesus says strive to enter the narrow door. Um, He's kind of saying, like, fight. Fight with everything you've got to get, to get through that narrow door, to get to that narrow door. Um, and so I do want to point out that this is much stronger than a lot of ways we would word going after Jesus. Um, stronger than, like, oh, you know, they're, they're interested, they're asking questions, um, seeking even. You know, that's a word that's used a lot. And, like, this is a little bit stronger than that. Um, and then even thinking of like our, our lives, you know, it's stronger than just like, yeah, I try to read the Bible and pray. Um, I go to church. 
Like, like that's nothing compared to what Jesus is asking you to do right here. Um, you know, I try to try to live for the kingdom when when I can, when it's convenient. Um, but this is a fight where you must agonize with a striving that will not quit. And so he says, the narrow door. And in Matthew seven, Jesus calls it a narrow gate. And we also learn in Matthew seven that the path is hard. So, quick pause here before we get too far down the rabbit hole. Um, at first read, if you're reading this, um, it may sound like Jesus is telling us works to do to be saved. Um, you know, he says about salvation, we must strive to enter the narrow door. Um, and of course, Jesus is correct. We must strive and we must enter the narrow door. Um, but this is not a works-based faith. This is saying that apart from the work of the Spirit, we would never strive. We would never approach that gate. Um, and the reason that this gate is the, this narrow gate is the only way to salvation is because this narrow door represents the only way there is to be saved, Jesus Christ. And that do, this door is Jesus, and Jesus is the one that does the saving, that he draws, him, draws us to himself as we strive towards him. And so we are striving, we are fighting, but he is drawing us. And then at that door, he pays our penalty. It's nothing that we have done. And then, so going with this narrow door, there is no other gate or door in existence that leads to life. There's a whole lot of other thought, a whole lot of other, a whole lot of other doors, wide paths going all different ways, but all of them lead to the same thing, destruction. All of them do not account for all of our sins that we have done, for any sin we have done is worthy of death. And unless that is accounted for before God, we go to hell. And this narrow gate is the only answer to that. Jesus Christ paying the penalty for us is the only one that, that gets us through. Sorry. So like I said, the path to get to this gate is hard. Um, there are a lot of easier ways to go. And whether it be giving in to any temptation, you know, the pleasures of the world, to, to give in to the greed, to... And then this one, this one I think is, is as we get through this passage, it really struck me is that to merely saying that getting to the narrow door is only one of the things that you want to do in life instead of the only thing, that that will hold you up and hamper you and prevent you from getting to that door. How walking with Jesus is a daily choice of death to all other things. So as we get to the second part of that verse, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. That is terrifying. Many will seek to enter and will not be able. Um, and I think, of, I think of people I've known that they wanted to follow Jesus. Like they, at least it seemed, seemed like they did. And they, they were, in a sense, seeking. But they, I mean, hopefully the Lord brings them back and they do enter. Um, but the just, just that seeking to enter and wanting to get to heaven isn't what gets you there. And as we go through the passage, we'll see 
It really just keeps coming back to Jesus. Um, so here we have Jesus answer the question of, will those who are saved be few? The answer is yes. It will be few. And we see that the wide, the wide path where most people go won't be saved. And besides that, we see that, yeah, there's a lot of people that could care less about being saved, or maybe they, they act like they care less or don't know. But then there's, there's a lot of people that do want to be saved, that will seek to enter, but won't make it. And like I said, this is sobering. Um, and this is not the only time that we see this in the scriptures. I'm going to turn to Matthew 13. And we read verses 1 and 9, the parable of the sower. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him. So they got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of, depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And the thing about this passage is the seeds were thrown out, and three of the different types of the four seeds hit soil and sprang up. That three of them received the word of the Lord with rejoicing. But only one of the seeds continues on to produce fruit and is actually as follower of Jesus in spirit and truth. And so we see here that even the majority of people hear the word and rejoice or say, would say, yes, I'm a Christian and like, I believe in Jesus or, and would, would you know, have joy, would, be, would get all emotionally charged at certain things. Um, but then the cares of this life choke them out or the troubles of this life choke them out. Another one I want to reference is uh, the the story of the, the rich man um, who comes and Jesus, you know, he's saying all the things that, he, that he's done and Jesus is like, well, this you lack. Sell all your things, you know, and follow me. And the rich man goes away very sad because he has a lot of possessions. And afterwards, Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Here's somebody, he wanted it. I mean, he, he wanted it, you know, he was like, tell me what to do. I'm, I'm doing all these things. Uh, and Jesus hit that one thing that one thing that was holding them back. And you find that, you know, something, really, it can be anything. But here, he says, for somebody that has a lot of money, or for somebody who's attached to anything that's not Jesus, like, it's easier for them, for a camel, to go through an eye of a needle than for them to get into the kingdom of heaven. Which, you know, don't, don't despair, because, you know, the next verse is when, when the disciples say, surely this is impossible, and he says, with man it's impossible, with God all things are possible. So don't despair, it can be done, because God is with us. Um, and then uh, one more passage I wanted to reference there was John chapter 6. Uh, and this was after uh, Jesus uh, feeds the 5,000, then they want to make him king, then he gives gives the whole bread of life speech and, and says, you know, you have, to, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they kind of, people are like, this is hard teaching. And 
and he talks to him a bit more, and then it says in 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And, you know, they stuck with him. Um, but then, to take it even a step further, in verse 70, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. So it's like, you have all these disciples that wanted to follow Jesus, but then when they see how hard the teaching is, most of them fall away. And you just have a little core there. And it's not even at that point, even at that point where there's just the 12 left, not all of them are going to make it. And I think as you're reading these passages and going through the scriptures with Jesus, he had a, 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 very, a, a skill, which obviously he's very skilled, he's God, but for, for boiling it right down for people, will you give up everything for me? You know, if you think about it, if he, if he wasn't so demanding, think of how many followers he could have had. Um, but he would, all these things that, and I, I think you have to be aware with our church today because we don't boil it down like Jesus did. He gets it right down to like, like, oh, the guy's like, I really want to follow you. You tell me what to do. I'll do it. You know, like what church leader would be like, all right, give up everything and follow me. And they're like, I can't give up everything. Nope. That's the, that's the stipulation. You know, no, I, I can't think of many people that would do that in the church setting. Um, and I mean, but it's all just to get down to the, you care more about your possessions than you do about me. Sure, you care about me, but there's things ahead of me. Um, and we see that again and again where he gets right down to what's most important to you. And like I said, he could have had a lot more followers. And I fear when I look at our ch church, again, the church in general as a whole, not as the true church, that, that the church falls for that that it welcomes more followers without ever clarifying that the path is hard, that you must either give up or be willing to give up your time, your money, your job, your friends, your family, your hopes and your dreams if you want to approach the narrow gate. And I am certain that Christ would take two or three believers in spirit, in, in spirit and in truth over 100,000 Christians that merely say they love, love, uh, uh, love Jesus. And so thinking about us today as a congregation and in each of us, like, let us strive to be one of those two or three that are true believers, that Jesus would take, that they're the ones that he's trying to teach. They're the ones that he's getting to that, that will, that his spirit is in them and we see how he works through them. And then in this life, and then who knows what happens in the next life exactly for what he'll do with us. So verses 25 to 27. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you came from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Again, it's a hard passage. And for... Like I just, it's just haunting for for the church. You know, seeing people who who claim that, you know, like we believed. You know, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets, and he says, "I never knew you." Um, and you know, as we look at this, we see ate and drank in your presence. 
you know, is that communion? Like, taking it a little step further there? Is that, is that people who sit around his cup and, and proclaim his death and resurrection? And then, <clears throat> you know, taught in our streets, you know, that you welcomed, you know, people welcomed his message that said, you, know, you are welcome to teach here. We, you know, we accept this as, as, as a good message. Go ahead and teach. Like, not good enough. That doesn't do it. And so also, if you look in the, not, you don't have to turn there, but Matthew 7, the parallel passage to this, also the group says that they prophesied in Jesus' name, they cast out demons in Jesus' name, and they've done many might, mighty works in Jesus' name. Again, that's not what gets you into heaven. That's not what gets you into the kingdom. All of that, going to church, uh, being accepting of Jesus' teaching, you know, teaching yourself, prophesying, doing mighty works, casting out demons. It's nothing in regards to salvation. <clears throat> and so looking at, at this passage with these people, you know, we can see some signs, if we look hard enough, in these of failure in these people's faith. You know, obviously, they didn't make it in the door before it closed. Um, that, I don't know if it wasn't, you know, so maybe it wasn't the most important thing to them. Maybe they were held up by other things. And it wasn't like, yeah, we're, we're getting there. We know, we're, we know where we're going and, and we want to get to that door. And then, oh, whoa, the door's shut. Hey, let us in. <clears throat> um, and then we see a little bit down further, Jesus says, depart from me, all you workers of evil. You know, so you know, evidently they were doing evil deeds. Now, I do want to pause right there and not sound mightier than them because... I've done lots of evil, and I, without even knowing any of you that well, I know you guys have too. It's 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 what we do, um, and and I know I tarry sometimes instead of getting to the door before it closes. I get distracted, and so this isn't to say that I'm better than these people. I also want to look at Matthew twenty-five. There's the story of the, the ten virgins. Where did I get to? Um, then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for, and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This same idea, the door shut on them. And they're saying, Lord, Lord, open us. Like, we were, we were prepared. We were supposed to be married to you. Um, and he says, I do not know you. And we see very similar reasons for why they might, like, that they were, they were foolish. It says that, that they, they didn't prepare well enough. They didn't really think it through. They didn't give it, they didn't give it that extra effort or extra step or thought that, that would have made the difference for them. Um, instead, they were left 
we're like, oh no, it's the end and we got to go and run and get oil now. You know, it's, like, it's too late at that point. Um, and it ends the same way where they're knocking on the door and he says, I don't know you. And so we see these people again that, that say that they, they, uh, they prophesied in Jesus' name. They cast out demons. They did mighty works. Um, they let Jesus teach in their streets. <clears throat> and we see very obviously this doesn't earn salvation. Rather, their actions earn damnation. And like I said, we are in the same boat. Our actions as well have earned damnation. That our works rightfully earned us eternal punishment. But the key, I believe, is where Christ says, I do not know where you came from. And in Matthew 7, he tells them, I never knew you. So what I take from this is that these people aren't in the kingdom because they didn't know Jesus. Yeah, they did a lot of stuff with him. Um, they, you know, I can go through the list again, but all those things, they, they were with him, they knew about him, but they didn't know him. Um, and so you hear the term, a personal relationship with Jesus a lot. And I think that is an important term, um, but I also think that it's thrown out, thrown out there so much that it's, it needs to be carefully considered instead of just like, oh yeah, I know what that is type of thing. Um, and so I, I did a little looking at to what does a, a personal relationship with Jesus look like? <clears throat> and I, I think the, the biggest verse that came to my mind for this was Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me that a personal relationship with Jesus means you are united with him in everything, that to be resurrected with him, you must first die with him, and you must be clinging to him right through it all. <clears throat> Thinking about it, like for us to be saved, Christ has to take our place, and that means we have to be willing to give up our place. For us, uh, where did I get to? And I, I heard another one that I thought was an apt description that you must receive Christ with open hands that you aren't able to hold on to anything else. That if you keep your hands clenched, he can't, can't come in. <clears throat> so we must lose our lives to Christ if we would gain it. And we must take up our cross and be crucified with Christ if we want to be resurrected with him. <clears throat> uh, I guess that Luke 9, you don't have to turn there. So just the passage where as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Interesting answer that Jesus gives there. When somebody says, I will follow you. When, and he says, like, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere. And, but obviously... Jesus, his message is to follow him. And so it's not him saying, no, no, you don't want to do that. It's him saying, it's going to be hard. It's not, it's not the picnic you've got in your mind. Instead, there's no place on this earth for a follower of Christ because their place is in heaven. And that's what you want because this earth is only going to last for a few years and then heaven will be eternal. So while there is no place for the Son of Man to, to lay his head, 
you just stick with him right through that, you cling to him, there's nothing here. Know that if you stick with him for that, if you have that personal relationship, you've crucified yourself where everything of yours is Christ. It doesn't matter that there's no place to lay your head. You will be very glad of that decision. Come, come the end. Let's see. And so just kind of looking at, like, as you go through with Jesus, it's just amazing, again, how it's different from what's preached in so many places, that Jesus never dresses up following him. He never says you won't have to give things up. He never says you won't have to give up your money or your job or your family, that it's not easy to be in fellowship with Jesus. And like I said, I think a lot of the church has missed that. The church doesn't often talk about how hard it is to be a Christian, how hard it is to truly follow Christ, all the things you have to either give up or be willing to give up right away. Instead, the church, I believe, in general, would rather have bigger crowds. And if they're important people, as far as the world is concerned, all the better. But in this parable here with the narrow door, when the people are knocking on the door, I think it's telling that as they're standing outside and knocking, nothing is mentioned of how much money they had, um, if they had the best ice cream or the best barbecue, uh, or if everybody liked them, or if they had a great family. The only thing that matters here is that they're locked out. They missed. Verses 28 through 30. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. So these people that they got locked out, that didn't get in, you know, it says they go to a place with weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I think one of the most painful parts for especially, you know, when it says like, I, I wonder, and I haven't done a deep study into this, but like when Jesus said it will be worse for you to, you know, the, the towns he was going through, Capernaum and whatever the other ones were, than for Sodom and Gomorrah. I wonder if part of that worse for them is all eternity, they'll be sitting there being like, we were so close. Like Jesus came to us and told us. Like, all we had to do was listen to this guy. And we didn't. And they're just going to regret that decision for all eternity. Oh, yeah, and just the idea, too, that... And when you look at it, what did they, what did they refuse him for? Or what does anybody refuse him for? For trifles. For things that are Nothing. And so just thinking about this and like just that everyone, all of us and, you know, any Christian should examine yourselves that to, to, uh, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling to make sure that you are not in that place, um, to not let the grace of God stand in front of you your whole life only to take it for granted 
and find out at the end that you didn't value it like you should have. And I'm going to turn back earlier in the chapter to take heed of the parable of the barren fig tree in uh, verse 6 of chapter 13. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Time is not unlimited. That if fruit doesn't come before a very set time, we don't know what that set time is, but God does. And we don't know. It could be today for any one of us or all of us. When he's already said like, well... You know, all right, I won't destroy that, that tree yet. Give it, we'll give it another year. We don't know. Maybe this is the end of that, another, uh, end of that next year. Um, and so just to be aware that time, don't think that you have a lot of time because you don't know. And that if you miss on that, you will go to a place of unquenchable fire. Uh, so verse 28 and 29, talking about Abraham and Isaac and people coming from the east and the west. As I kind of mentioned at the beginning, um, these verses are, are largely targeted at Israel. Um, about how many Jews think they are Jews, but are actually in the synagogue of Satan. That they have come into this uh, legalistic version of, of their religion where they have created more traditions uh, on top of what God had told them to do, and they value more their traditions than the law of God, and it's, it's all just a show, and it's not part of their heart, and they think that they're getting into the kingdom. But then when we get here, all these people that they thought they were better than are, are coming from all different directions, and they're coming into the kingdom while they themselves are cast out. And like I said, this is about Israel, um, but very applicable to the church as well, to think that we've got it. You know, we, we understand and to fall into any of the same traps that, that, that the Jews of the day did there where, where they thought they were better than other people. They thought they were in just because they were Jews. They thought that their traditions that they made up were, were, were like up next to godliness, um, to not let any of those things creep in to our, our walks of faith. And then I'll finish up with verse 30. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. For in regards to salvation, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, rich or poor, black or white, uh, different social classes, whatever, whatever you want to say. Any differences that so many people in this world focus on so much that there is no distinction. Um, the distinction of salvation is that you have believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And we see throughout the scriptures that if a person is a brother, that that is cherished above all other things, that all other things become meaningless compared to having a person as a brother or sister. And so the distinction, like I said, of being of salvation, you believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And looking at this passage, that the evidence that this belief 
is in spirit and truth will be a life marked by submission of anything and everything under Christ's lordship and a daily death to self and placement of Christ on the throne of your own soul. And with that, I will close in prayer. Dear Father, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you don't mince words, but that you give us the truth, even when it can be hard. We pray that you use it in our hearts and you keep working in us and you, you hold us as your own and help us to walk this hard path that we would not be able to walk without you. And we thank you for the chance to meet together in fellowship. We praise you for the work that your son has done so that we would have that hope, so that we could enter a narrow door that otherwise we would have no hope of entering. In Jesus' name, amen.